Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Entrepreneurs and hosted by Pearson Crutcher and Jay Healy. The Society of Entrepreneurs is a membership organization founded to promote entrepreneurship and provide education and resources to Memphis business owners. In this podcast, we'll have a series of interviews with accomplished business owners and entrepreneurs in Memphis, Tennessee. There are so many great entrepreneurs in Memphis and their stories need to be told. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. We have an exciting conversation today with Doug Marchant. Doug is a serial entrepreneur who has founded and run multiple companies, including Concord EFS, Electronic Physician Network, and United Health Services. He has a degree from Mississippi State in computer science and mathematics, which explains why all of his companies use technology to better the lives of everyday people and solve a lot of business problems. The Society of Entrepreneurs recently awarded Doug as the 2023 Master Entrepreneur. This is given to members that have made a lasting impact on their companies, on their industries, and on their communities based on creativity, leadership, integrity, and giving back. Doug meets all of those expectations and more. Please enjoy our interview with Doug Marchant. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. I am very excited today to have Doug Marchant with us. Doug is a serial entrepreneur, has been invested and owned and operated many different companies, so I will let him go into all of the different companies that he's been involved with. But also, Doug is the 2023 recipient of the Master Entrepreneur Award from the Society of Entrepreneurs, which makes me very happy, and we are very happy to have you here with us today, Doug. Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. Well, thank you. It's a great honor, and I'm very appreciative of that. feel unworthy, but glad to be involved with the Society. Yeah, we're glad to have you here as well, Doug. So we'll start where we always start. Just tell us about your entrepreneurial journey. Where did you grow up? How did you get your businesses started? What's the history? Well, I mean, the history, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, many years ago and got ready to go to college. And where I grew up, everybody went to Ole Miss or Mississippi State. That was the only schools. And I told my dad, I thought I was going to get a degree in mathematics. And Ole Miss is where a bunch of my friends were going. So I went and told him that. And he said, son, you can go anywhere you want to. My dad was an engineer and very focused on education and what. And he said, son, you can go anywhere you want to go. But only place I'm going to help you is Mississippi State. It's a good engineering <laughs> school and they'll good teaching. So I said, boy, that made my mind up real quick. It was a good choice. I went to Mississippi State and ended up getting a degree in mathematics and computer science before it was the thing to do. So kind of lucked into that. I mean, computer science was a very new industry when you started out, right? It was very new. I think Mississippi State was the second school in the Southeast offered a degree in computer science behind Georgia Tech. So they were kind of with their engineering school, they were at the forefront of that. So I lucked out and got involved in that and swore to got my degree. It's funny to think about the fact that the computer lab was, you know, huge room with this massive computer. And now we can, in the palm of our hand, do it on our phones. It's more powerful than a lot of them. But yeah, I grew up using the Hollerith cards that people don't even know what they are. But Learning Fortran and all of that fun stuff. <laughs> did more of that, yep. And what did you do after college? You always think you want to go back home. And what I didn't understand is my degrees were technical in nature, but there are no technical jobs in Mississippi. 
So I got recruited to Houston, Texas to work for Texaco. They were the second largest computer installation in America at the time then. And it was a great training, great learning experience. And I was exposed to a lot of new stuff in the computer field and learned a lot, but got recruited back to the Mid-South through the university. People are always looking for jobs and got an opportunity to come to Memphis. I didn't know anything about Memphis. And my wife didn't really like Houston as a big boom town. And we thought Memphis was another big city like that. And we said, let's try it for a year. And that was 1976. So it kind of worked out and ended up being a great move to come to Memphis. What was the job that you took in Memphis? The job I took in Memphis was with a large agricultural distributor. And it's Helena Chemical was owned by a company called Vertac. Vertac had several manufacturing facilities around the Mid-South in Vicksburg, West Memphis, Little Rock. And everything was on paper then. So I basically automated the cost accounting for all the manufacturers. So they actually knew what they were producing and what it cost. And that was kind of a great learning experience for me and helped turn the company around. And then Helen, the the distributor, was the bigger one, and I was put in charge of their IT and helped develop that and build that up through several years. And then I know that one of the first entrepreneurial ventures was Concordia FS. So how did you get involved there? When did that happen? Well, at Helena, I was head of the IT, and Dan Palmer was the chief financial guy. He was a really smart guy. We met and became good friends, and we were young and didn't know a lot, but always kind of wanted to do something on our own. And so we wanted to do something. Technology is what I could bring to the table, and he in finance. So that's where the first idea of EFS came up with. That time of the year, the fuel prices were going right through the roof. The truck stops were giving uh, yeah, again <laughs> back then. But the truck stops would give you a four percent discount for cash. And of course truckers didn't give their truck drivers credit cards because you're at risk for four or five hundred dollars for a fill up. So we came up with a concept of a debit card in the trucking industry. We'd issue a debit card to the drivers. We would go to the truck stop, set up a point of sale terminal, which was then brand new. Nobody was really doing that. And take that transaction, validate it, send it back. We'd collect, charge 2% to the trucking companies and get two truck stop because we would fund the next day an ACH transaction that would give them the, they would give the cash discount. So it was great starting with a debit card there and that started to grow. And we were struggling to do that. Thought, you know, we could do this real quickly. But what happened in the, I can't remember the exact years, is, is around 80, two or three Visa and MasterCard fraud was rampant in the U.S. then. Most people don't remember these young people, but there was a book they would give you and it was thick and you were supposed to look up and find if there was any fraudulent transactions or the cards canceled. Nobody did that. So Visa MasterCard came up with the concept, if you'll do a verification of this, we'll give you a discounted rate to the interchange. And it was a big discount. So we looked at what we were doing in the trucking industry and said, that's the same thing we're doing. We're taking a transaction, authorizing it, sending it back. So overnight, I got some books and started reading about Visa MasterCard. And all of a sudden, we were a Visa MasterCard processor before it was the thing to do. And nowadays, every transaction is electronically authorized. But this was back before you had the internet or anything, you had a dial-up line you had to put in, the transaction fee. Right. That's when a lot of gas stations had satellites behind right. them, right? Right. Yeah. In fact, a company here in Memphis was building one of the satellite systems to go around there. But it was 
advent of the movement of electronic data that helped get us going and built that up and kept growing that company. So, And was that one of the first of that companies like that in the country? For the debit card, it was. I mean, there were some other processors coming up growing. I mean, first Tennessee started doing some of the credit cards and everybody was getting into it because the discount rate was so much more favorable and you cut your fraud down and the whole process worked. But I don't know who the competition was. There was a big trucking company that copied us in Nashville and doing the debit card. Well, we were probably the first ones to do the transaction in the debit card for the trucking industry. Wow, that's pretty cool. I remember thinking, I remember hearing somebody saying, I think that you were one of the people that made it responsible for us to be able to charge our McDonald's on a visa. <laughs> so there's original sales like that. Crazy. So what was the next company or how did that one finish? That finished and actually over the years, FDR ended up buying Concord EFS. The way EFS started doing the short transactions, but it was actually started here in Memphis and then Vic Tyler with Concord out of Boston they made ATMs and they made point-of-sale devices, and they had big contracts with big grocery stores, then like Jewel and Dominic's. But those were long-term contracts, and we had short contracts, and we could grow them nimble fast. So Dan and I put our heads together and said, you know, we can grow faster than them, so let's move the headquarters to Memphis. And that's ended up what we're doing. We became the biggest financial part of the company. So that's how it got moved to Memphis. And they still ran the transactions for large grocery stores, basically doing a verification and check cashing, which was similar, but it was a little bit different. And that's how the companies combined. And then it, I don't remember exact time, but in the late 90s, it got bought by FDR, which is the largest processor out there, did that. And then after that, some good friends of mine in Nashville were moving into the same concept into the electronic, the medical field. You know, people would walk into doctor's offices and have an insurance card, and the doctor didn't know whether it was good or bad or indifferent. So we came up with a concept that you can still use a point-of-sale terminal, validate that, let the person know. So that Jay does have Blue Cross, and he does O25 for copay. You can collect them, so it made a whole lot more efficient. And so I started a company called EPN, which is Electronic Physician Network, built that out to where we'd go out and sell to doctors. And while you're out there, authorizing it, you could pick up that transaction electronically, take the bill, file it for them, and move that data around, and it was a much more efficient operation for the doctor's office. So we would do the eligibility and the pick up the transactions. That's amazing. And where did you get that concept? Some good friends of mine in Nashville called Envoy, Edna, I think, went to them and said, we've got a real issue with this. Can you help us do that? And they knew we were driving ATMs, and not ATMs, but point-of-sale terminals, and I could move that data around for them. So learned that business and took off. What's the status of that business now? So We grew that business, ended up selling it to Envoy, which got bought by WebMD about the same time that transaction. So it kind of helped them grow that model for a little while. And around the same time, a couple of good friends came to me about a concept of UHS, which is Unified Health Services, about handling the workman's comp claims for doctor's offices. It's a misunderstood market, but it's a $30 billion market. It's a similar concept. There's no authorization for work. You know, the law says if an injured worker, you cannot charge him for fee. The company is liable. If you've got more than five employees, you have to have 
workman's comp insurance. But typically the people like Jay, who is your workman's comp carrier here at your office? I don't know. (laughs) But that's where the problem originates. Yeah. An injured worker walks into a hospital or ER and he may have had Blue Cross for regular, but they'll file it for Blue Cross and then 30 days later gets rejected. Said this looks like an accident. So then 90 days go by and the guy's already out of the office. How do you collect that transaction or how do you collect that payment? So we came up with a concept that if it's workman's comp, you let us know immediately. We will call either the insurance, which is Liberty or some of the big carriers or, you know, Sedgwick here in Memphis is a big TPA that handles workman's comp. And we would validate the information, let them know a worker's injured. Do you know how he got injured, whatnot, to help fill out the reports and then take those transactions and move them. We move all that electronically. So we would go in and guarantee payment to the doctors, which they had a lot of bad debt and a lot of receivables from Workman's Comp because they didn't know how to bill it. So we figured that out and built the eligibility system and picked those transactions up, get them paid, reimburse them back to them and move all the data around electronically. So that was kind of a, a unique situation and nobody was really doing that. So those are three very unique ideas, which you we're able to build companies around. How many more do you have? Well, <laughs> there's a pharmacy business we started about 10 years ago. And if you look at medication management is one of the biggest problems in assisted living or really in most hospitals and patients. But there's computers and software and technology. Now you can do a unidose packaging or you can package your medications. If we're taking four pills a day, say, here's what you take in the morning at seven o'clock. And it's basically a little strip that you tear off, and that is your dispenser. There's no human intervention, and that's where a lot of the issues happen in assisted living. Nurse will punch a pill out, put it in the souffle cup. They'll drop it on the floor or miss it. or So there's a lot of errors made where with our system, which you can print their name on it, the time, the day to take it, what the pill is, and it's a clear package. You look at it to make sure you're delivering the right thing. So I was kind of intrigued, so started that with another friend and went out and bought and built the pharmacy, and it's growing right now. So it's a unique object, but I just look at everything as a transaction. You know, you're moving a transaction, whether it's a pill, electronic data, or something. So Debit card. Right. Debit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So these are very unique ideas. I think a lot of people have ideas, but a lot of people can't build them into businesses. Do you feel like you had a special quality or ability to do that? I don't know with ability. Maybe I'm a risk taker and didn't know it. But I think part of my background, and and they teach you in engineering, is that pure science has come easy to me. That's why I got a degree in mathematics. You know, it's all the fuzzy stuff I don't quite understand sometimes, like economics and finance and that. But I can generally figure it out pretty easy. So if you hand a problem to an engineer, they can generally figure out the right way to solve it. And looking at technology has been one thing I've done with every business. I've just taken a business issue or problem and used technology to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Did you take on all the other responsibilities of building the business, growing the business, managing the business? Until I hired people, yes. Okay. (laughs) So you learn a lot by doing that, but it's in a small company, you end up doing everything everything you need to do to make it go. And what was the maximum employee that you had in any of these businesses? Oh, really at the peak of EFS, we had probably a thousand, but, you know, UHS, we got almost 200 people working at that. And the pharmacy is a small operation, but, you know, anywhere from 11 to a thousand. 
When you were building these companies, did you have any special mentors that you would take ideas to and that you worked through concepts? You know, beginning, not because I didn't know anybody, but later on, I met people like Herbert Ray, who I respected incredibly and just talked to and listened to. And you learn so much. And, you know, people like Joe Orgel that I got to know later on and just think these guys are awesome. Just listen to them. And like George Cates, I've met him and got to know him. And people like that are just awe inspiring to me. And you learn just by being around them or listening or watch what they do. I was lucky to be able to associate with some of those people. Mm-hmm. What about your dad? Wasn't he a role model? You know, you don't realize that when you're growing up, but he was my first mentor and role model. I mean, I was the child that always, if there was a project, worked with him. I don't know whether I followed instructions that well, but I was always the one with him, hanging out with him. And you didn't realize how much you're learning. And my dad, being the engineer that he was, I mean, he was always building, improving, and fixing things. And, you know, you're hanging around with him, you're learning. So he, he was quite a mentor and quite an example for me, for my life. That's great. You know, one of the things that you just said is that you had good people that helped you with the thing so that you could kind of have the concept and the idea, but you had other people doing some of the implementation. How did you find those people? That's one of the hardest things is finding good people to work with. And you never know until you work with them. And, you know, just do the best you can and find people that, you know, are going to help you grow and got a, a certain talent about it. But I don't think there's any magic about it. It's just trial and error sometimes. And then you learn about what you're looking for, if that person will fit into this slot. You think about technology companies today where they dress down and they have the ping pong tables and the bing bag chairs. How was your culture at your companies in the technology field? Oh, when it started off years ago, I mean, it wasn't anything like technology. After college, I even took some interview. I mean, one thing, I don't know why things stick in your mind, but I interviewed pro systems whenever they were starting that when I was graduating. And one of the questions they asked me in interviews is, are you willing to wear a suit and tie every day? And of course, back then you did. You know, IBM had every white shirt and a suit. Mm-hmm. So when I first started, we all wore coats and ties and a suit every day. And it's changed rapidly since then. But that's the way it was starting out whenever. Mm-hmm. What would you say your culture is like today? Much more casual. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just for the listeners to know, we're in tuxedos right now. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you believe that. The out is amazing. <laughs> so. Yeah. So elaborate on how you've changed the culture over time or how would you define it now? It's more casual. I mean, the whole industry or everywhere you go, nobody wears much of a suit or a tie anymore. I don't know how much I've dictated change. You just see society changing every day. And so you go along with that. I mean, business casual is, is a great idea. So mm-hmm. both for clothing and mental. <laughs> and, you know, and I think things can develop so much more. I mean, we find out with the COVID, you know, people can work from home. Yeah. You know, it's not built for everybody. And I still question some people's capabilities to be as efficient. But, you know, Zoom has changed all of us from what we do. So, I mean, it's for long distance meetings, it works out well, but I still think you miss a lot by not being in the same facility with some people. You miss something without the interaction. Sure, sure. And when you built out your executive team, so when you built out a, one of these companies and you had everybody staffed up, what would your role have been? What were the responsibilities that you wanted to keep handling? 
you know, I wanted to be involved in the technology. One thing I learned that you need to be involved in the sales and marketing and getting in front of the customers and okay. delivering something like that. One of the questions we always like to ask when we're doing these interviews is, did you have any specific challenges in growing your business that you learned a lot from? Yeah, money. You better have enough money to keep the doors open. And there's only one or two times we did that. When we started EFS, we thought, well, we can do a thousand transactions and we'll be in good. But we were doing tens of thousands and it still took a lot of money. And generally in the startup, in fact, I use now, it takes three times as long and three times as much money as you think it will. So, you know, you've got to be pretty close on your projections or hope because there's always something that stops or slows you down that you can't plan for. And that, I guess that's probably the biggest problem. You can have the best ideas, but if you don't have the good people and you don't have the money to keep the doors open, your idea will be delayed. As many different companies as you've had and done different things, is there anything that you thought about that you just decided you weren't going to pursue? Any ideas for businesses that were out there that you just decided weren't the right thing at the right time? Well, I mean, to me, and all these have been in the service industry, and, and generally, you know, if you take just like UHS, you know, you get the injured worker, gets back to work quick. The bill gets paid. The hospital is happy. The doctors are happy. The patient gets proper medication or whatever goes that. And we can make a few cents off of it. It's not many businesses where everybody along the food chain can do well or you do benefits. I look for transactions like that, that where you don't have some adversary on there. So, And there's been a couple of and one things. And I think because I don't like dealing with bureaucracies, it has to do with the government. I try to stay away from it, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though they need a lot of help. They do need an efficiency person like you, Doug. <laughs> you know, I guess that's the only thing, because I look at things different than most people, because everything I've been involved with, it's a, I look at it, like I said earlier, it's a transaction. You know, you're moving data, you're moving information, and you can make a few cents off of it as you move it around kind of a win-win for both you as a company and the clients, right? The clients are happy because you're delivering service to them that you can prove, and you, but you've got to prove it every day if you're in the service industry. For sure. What's the best piece of advice anybody ever gave to you as you were growing your business? I mean, I think the most important thing, anything, is your integrity and ethics. You know, every business are the people I like to be around. <laughs> they're trustworthy, they're honest, and they're, you know, ethical. So integrity to me means the most of anything. And is that the culture that you've developed in your companies also? I hope so, yeah. You've got to have trust in people, and that's how you develop trust. Yep, that's true. Is there anything that you've done? I know that you are a mentor to the Society of Entrepreneurs Insights Group, but is there anything that you've done along the way to continue to learn? I mean, technology is changing so quickly. How have you been able to stay on top of all of those changes? You know, I just spend time looking and researching and reading. I'm always intrigued with the newest technology. And, you know, just like this latest fintech company that I'm involved with, I mean, it's it's light years ahead of what I started with years ago. The capabilities that these basically computers in our pockets we have nowadays, if you look at the apps and whatnot, that's always intriguing to me is how you can develop and you can deliver a lot of information quickly to a lot of people. And this is a company that, you invested in over time? Yes. And can you share the, the name or what their products are? Well, Synapse, and they're basically a back-end bank for a lot of these companies that are offering financial transactions. So they're basically the, the bank behind a lot of these startup companies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
How do you keep it straight? I mean, you've got so many different things that you've got and you're involved with. So There's good people. <laughs> that's, that's the key to anything. That, it certainly is. It certainly is. So having run several companies out of Memphis, did you find that Memphis was a good place to have this entrepreneurial? I mean, it is what it is. You know, my family and I were here. And I think Memphis business community, you know, when I first moved here, I thought it's another huge city. But it's really... And it's what I like about it. You know everybody in business. You have good contacts. You can share information. You can call on whoever you need to. It's a very good city for doing that. I mean, everybody's willing to help at any time. And I like that. And I like the idea that it's not a huge metropolitan area that, you know, you can talk to anybody. And generally, most people in Memphis will talk to you about anything. And there's some great companies that were started and grown here. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, been asked that question before. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it started with Kimmons Wilson thinking like this is an idea and building on it. You could always go back to, you know, this was the cotton capital of the world. I mean, cotton traders or gamblers or entrepreneurs, I don't know what you want to call them, but farmers start out as the real entrepreneurs growing something, not knowing what they're going to sell it for. So maybe the cotton traders, I mean, we had some of the biggest cotton companies in the world. And you look at, you know, Ned Cook and Rudy Scheidt and people like that that grew up in that industry. I don't know whether that started it or Fred Smith and thinking of an idea and people saw how big it could be. And there's a lot of good companies like that here, you know, from AutoZone that had never been done before. And all of a sudden, it's one of the biggest in the country. Wow. You know, I kind of want to go back to a question that we tend to ask, and I didn't ask it, but if somebody came to you and they said that they were thinking about starting a business, what advice would you give to them after your years of experience? Be sure you want to do that. I mean, because you're committed 24-7 to doing that if you want it to be successful. Make sure you got funding and make sure you've got good people around you that you can call on to help you develop your ideas or build your company. It's all about people. You surround yourself with smarter people than you, you're going to be successful. And that's what I've tried to do. That's great. Very good. The other thing is, is that I know you've bought and sold companies. So how do you decide that it's time to let a company go or to sell it? Generally, it depends on what you want to do. You know, if the earnings are there and the timing's right and somebody wants to buy you. And, you know, you always got to have somebody that wants to step in and take it over and grow it even more or do something else with it. So there's no answer to that. You know, the company will grow. And if it's stagnant, it's not going to sell or not grow. So find somebody else that can grow it or, or do something different or merge with another company. You know, it's interesting to talk to you because you've had so many different companies and that you've kind of been involved, bought, sold. So it's kind of a different than an interview with somebody that's had the one company and it's when they've sold it, it's basically losing their baby, you know? Oh, it is. You feel a connection to it no matter what. And you'll always feel that connection no matter who owns it or who grows it. You'll always be part of it, even though you're a smaller part of it because it's a lot bigger conglomerate now. Yeah. Every company needs a succession plan, whether that's internal or external. Do you have any advice for how entrepreneurs that are in the middle zone of their journey think about the future there? The only thing people I've been around entrepreneurs, when they get to a certain level, the company's outgrown them or they've taken a different channel. You know, you need to recognize that and either move out or let somebody else take it 
grow it for you, but still stay connected. You'll always be connected if you started it. But every company is different, and every transaction is different, and every segment of the business is different. Who would ever know we have this banking calamity right now? Because, you know, supposedly the government put certain controls on it, and it didn't happen. So things change too quick. So you just got to be cognizant of all of that. For sure. One question that we do always ask, and I'm very intrigued to hear what you're going to say about this, Doug, is that do you think that entrepreneurs are born or taught? There's no answer to that. I think it's both. I mean, I look at my background. I was learning from my dad that I didn't know I was learning. But, you know, I don't know if it's the DNA or you learn from birth or you learn by doing. I think both can be the answer to that. Because you mentioned you have to be a risk taker. You've got to be a risk taker, but when you work for somebody and you see it's like I have the way to get equity or grow, I want to do it myself. You've got to be sure that's what you want to do. And you don't have to have your own company to be an entrepreneur. Plenty of people that work for big companies have ideas and modification and change. To be an entrepreneur, somebody's always looking to do something better than before. And I think, you know, huge companies, you know, you get bonus and incentives for providing better procedures or better applications doing that. And I think you don't have to be an owner to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's an interesting insight, which I think applies in a lot of large tech companies that are willing to support new ideas and let people just run with them. Mm -hmm. Well, it goes back to people, and that's what you said many times. (laughs) Finding good, talented people that are willing to take risk. Did you have people that worked for you that came up with new ideas that you actually executed? We're always looking to improve the process, you know. When we started U.S., everything was in paper, and we figured there's no way we could have enough warehouses to store all this paper. So we basically built our own electronic medical record before electronic medical record companies were out there. We knew we had to do something better, and that came from the people working. So we can't keep buying file cabinets, you know. So we created the first digital <laughs> that I know of, and it was all self-developed. That is very interesting. So is that technology that you'd like to take to market? (laughs) Uh, No. You're a whole different field when you try to take software and get out there and sell it. Well, one of the things that, and especially for the person that's the master entrepreneur, is that you have to give back to the community. And I know that you're involved in a lot of things in Memphis. You want to talk a little bit about some of those things? Yeah, I mean, I think you should all try to give it back if you're capable. And one thing that Gloria and I, my wife, look to do is for education and health care. We think those are two needs in this city and whatnot. And I think what Scott Morris has done at Church Health Center, we've been impressed and been supporting him for years. And what he does and what he's built is phenomenal to me. You know, we've got places like the Madonna Learning that we support that is, does an incredible job for, for these children of need. But, you know, and then of course, St. Jude is the leader here for children's and Labonner, and that's what people forget. We have incredible health care here in Memphis. So we look for things to help educate. And, you know, Teach for America is one, and Gloria and I have supported through a, another friend. But we look for things like that and what can help the most people. Mm-hmm. And you're still involved with Mississippi State some too, right? Right. I'm still on the, the board at Mississippi State and the, the engineering school, and we try to help we sponsored some programs there to get kids in the college easier and better and to teach them at an earlier age. And do you feel like the engineering as a profession is sort of accelerating? I think a lot of 
younger kids are interested in it because of the stem cell programs. Oh, I do. I think it teaches you a lot about solving problems and fixing issues, and I think that's a good ability. So one thing that we sponsored is getting some young children in Mississippi, like from eighth grade, into camps to introduce them to engineering, because the earlier you can get them introduced, the better. I said stem cell, but I meant STEM programs. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's hope we don't need a stem cell, okay? Right, right. So. But yeah, I think, you know, science and technology is what we need to be teaching these children nowadays, cause, and they'll find their own level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, outside running multiple businesses, what do you do for fun? I love traveling with my family. We like to do that. Been playing tennis for a long time. I like doing that. Play a little golf, which is a very frustrating game. <laughs> You know, and I, I still swim some, but I always like activity and, but competed in different, you know, things like triathlons running till I wore my knees out. So that doesn't happen anymore. That's funny. What are three things that you absolutely could not live without? Family and faith is the top two things and challenges. You know, I always like challenges, but, you know, as I get older, maybe easier challenges. <laughs> Yes, I I can imagine that you don't like to be bored very often, right? (laughs) What would something that people would be surprised to find out about you? Well, I held the state record in my category in backstroke a couple of years ago. So that is very surprising and very cool, actually. (laughs) Which means I kept swimming and most people didn't. Right, right. (laughs) I don't know if I think that's the case, but very cool. So you continue to stay active. I do. I try to. You know, one thing I do want to talk about is the fact that you are a part of the mentoring group, that's the Society of Entrepreneurs Insights Group. Can you talk about that and why you feel like that's important to do? I mean, I think for the community, it helps the community efforts and people that get started. I mean, I don't feel like I do a whole lot, but as you know, you keep asking me back and I feel like we should do more, but I like being with the people. And if I can help, I'd be glad to. And that's kind of what got it started. And you got it started. So, you know, a good friend of mine told me, he said, you learn through experiences. I've had a lot of experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully I've Been learned able to from share most that. of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have any specific examples of other entrepreneurs that you've helped with by giving them advice or helping them answer their own questions? In this group that we meet with every first Thursday, I answer the question. I don't know whether it's helped them or not, but, you know, I like to think if I didn't, they'd come back and ask again. But it's kind of a fun deal. And if we can help, be glad to. Sure. And I think it's a unique opportunity because every entrepreneur is dealing with problems for the first time over and over and over again. And when you can collaborate with other people that have had those problems and figured out a solution, it can be super helpful. Yeah. And that's kind of what we think. I mean, I've I've made a lot of mistakes and mm-hmm. I've learned from it. So if I could share that, I'd be right. glad to. Just the same way we raised our kids. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Learn from my mistakes. Don't make them yourself. Right. There's <laughs> no reason to reinvent the wheel. Right. right. <laughs> so you're correct. Well, thank you so much, Doug. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time today. And congratulations again on the Master Entrepreneur. Well, thank Looking you. forward to celebrating you on April 15th. Okay. Well, I'll be there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Doug Marchant. If you'd like to learn more about Doug's history or any of the organizations we mentioned, please review our show notes. Thanks. Thanks.